We appreciate you so much. Because of your service, we're able to do what we're doing here today without fear of persecution. And uh, we live in a great, great nation. Uh, we can say there's all kind of debate and all kind of talk we can get into. Go anywhere else around the world. You come back here, you will kiss the dirt. I'm telling you, it is a great land that we live in. And I thank God that I am an American citizen. Uh, this morning, it is my privilege, it is my honor to introduce, I believe this is right, Steve, the Grand Potentate, the Mayor of Smithfield, the Chief Cook and Bottle Washer, <laughs> yeah. what, whatever else it was that he told me to say, <laughs> I forgot it by now. But it is my honor to, to present to you this morning Brother Steve Smith, what a man of God. He's been a friend of pastors for a long time, been my friend for 14 years, a friend of Whitley, your home brother. Come up and deliver the word this morning to us. We're ready to receive it. Would you give him a warm Whitley Church welcome? Brother Steve Smith. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Morning. I appreciate Pastor Andy. I served six years as an assistant pastor, and Pastor Andy, I know, has been here 13 or 14. They say it takes more grace than words can tell to play the second fiddle well. And uh, Pastor Andy does such a tremendous job. Would you thank him for his many ministries? Appreciate Pastor Jared and the praise team. And Pastor Jared, by the way, the uh, fire marshal would like to talk to your father uh, after the service. Hope you're well today. Happy 4th of July weekend. I have to tell you, there are not many churches. In fact, this is the only church I've ever been in. I've preached in about seven or 800 of different congregations where the word wedgie was mentioned on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it was just kind of liberating. Uh, next week, as I understand it, uh, we may uh, hear about swirlies. I don't know, but... but uh, Wedgies in worship. What did you do today in church? Well, we got a wedgie. No, 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 no. But uh, glad to be with you. And I uh, want to minister today from uh, some of the most beautiful language in the Old Testament. And uh, found in Isaiah 40. The birthday of our country began on 1776, the Revolutionary War, the the War of Independence, Declaration of Independence from Tyranny, from Britain. My heart, like yours, swells when I hear a big brass band and work we blessed this morning by our sister as she sang these patriotic melodies. Would you thank her once again? My citizenship is in the United States. And I am grateful for that, but my first citizenship is in heaven. I'm kind of a citizen of two countries. How about you? My first citizenship is in heaven. My earthly citizenship is here, and I am grateful to be in the United States. My father's a decorated fighter pilot and uh, uh, flew in Korea and Vietnam, and I tried to get in the Air Force and fly jets and flunk the physical. So in any case, I'm in the Lord's army now. Let me shift gears. How many of you remember seeing Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan? Can I see a hand? Okay, you're 
telling your age a little bit. How many of you remember the Jackson 5 on Ed Sullivan? Can I see some hands? Remember Michael Jackson, 8, 10 years old, whatever he was? Yes, someone in the back there appears to be about 8 years old, remembers them on Ed <laughs> Sullivan. How many of you remember, let's see, El was it Elvis, Jackson 5, the Beatles? Anybody see the Beatles? On, when, when the Beatles hit uh, at around 64, I lived in England. We were stationed there at Woodbridge Air Force Base. And I remember being offended when John Lennon said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And the sad thing is, he was probably correct, at least in the land of Britain. The Beatles had a big song in 1968. Uh, it's called Revolution One. And the first lyric of the first verse is, you say you want a revolution. Remember that song? And so I'm asking myself as I'm preparing to preach, writing a message, studying, how does God respond to someone, to an individual, to a people who declare independence from him? It's one thing to declare independence from King George in England, it's a whole nother deal to declare independence from God. So how does God respond when we do our own thing? You say you want a revolution, but how does God respond when we live that way? When many Americans live that way, how does God respond? Now, the, the, the book of Isaiah is a rather lengthy book. He's called the Paul of the Old Testament. The, the book roughly divides uh, in, in thirds. The first two-thirds is bad news, 39 chapters. It is scorching condemnation. It is blistering preaching against sin. There is a prediction that the people of Judah will be enslaved and taken captive to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. There's a sudden shift. I mean, it's like that in the 40th chapter. From condemnation to consolation, to comfort, to restoration. It roughly, it roughly looks like the entire Bible, the th first 39 books of the Bible. We call the Old Testament. There's a lot of preaching against sin, and you see a lot of failure, and you see law. And then in the 27 remaining chapters... In the Bible, like the 27, the 27 books in the New Testament are much like the 27 chapters of Isaiah. Consolation, the gospel, grace, mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today my question is to you, have you declared independence from God? Are you serving him with your lips but living as though you are independent from him? What would God have to say to us? What did God say to people back then? Isaiah preached in the 8th century B.C., and this entire book was written before Babylon conquered Judah. It's about 150 years after this that all that happened. And no doubt when the Jewish people went into captivity, this prophecy went with them, and they, they, they knew that they had, they had declared independence from God. They'd served other gods and idols of various sorts. And no doubt these words in Isaiah 40 were a great comfort to them. As Pastor Andy, I believe, said earlier, we need to declare dependence on God. Would you agree? If you're taking notes, and I hope you will because there will be a quiz, 
Point number one, what does God say to us when we have a revolution of the heart from him? First, he reveals that he's in charge, that he rules. God reveals that he rules despite human frailty, despite human sin and rebellion. Look what he says in the 10th verse, 40th chapter of Isaiah in the New International Version. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He's drawing a great big picture. Because when we take God off the throne, we make God small and weak and weary. He says then, he's stretching their vision. He says, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? My son has a friend from Wisconsin. This young had never seen the ocean. He flew out a couple of years ago. I had some frequent flyer miles, and we hosted him in North Carolina, took him down to see the battleship and saw a couple of things. And remember seeing his face when he saw the ocean for the first time. God says he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's got great big hands, great big hands. Great big hands. He said, he, see, he's comparing himself to the idols of the age that generally have to do with money, sex, power, idolatry. He says, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens. Hold up your hand, please, and spread out the span of your hand. Now, most of us are going to have a span between about six and a half and nine inches. Thank you. You can put your hand down. It says with the span of his hand, God can measure the universe. Now, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. And our earth revolves around a picayune star we call the sun. And it's a rather small galaxy, but it's 100,000 light years across. Traveling at the speed of light take 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way galaxy. And yet our galaxy is one of millions in God's universe. And God can walk and walk up and go and measure the entire universe like that. God's got great big hands. And he still rules and reigns in this universe. He continues. The Isaiah is trying to stretch the vision of God's people's thinking of who he is, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains in scales, on scales, and the hills in a balance, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him in his as his counselor. Verse 14, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it who taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in the, bu drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands, he's speaking there of Gentile nations, as though they were dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. That was the biggest forest in that part of the world, was in Lebanon. He's stretching 
their, their mindset. They'd made God small because of the revolution, the rebellion of their hearts. Nor its animals enough for burnt offering. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded him by him as worthless and less than nothing. Friend, God loves America. He loves our people, but he also loves the people of Iran. He loves the people of China and North Korea. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. He would that all people would declare dependence on him. When he says the nations are like a drop in the bucket and regarded as dust on the scales, he's speaking of the marketplace. Isaiah is using language the people can understand that in the marketplace, if a, if a merchant was weighing out something on scales, if there was a little dust on the scale, it, it was not even brushed off because it wasn't considered important. If there was a, a drop in a bucket before oil was poured in to be weighed or whatever, it was disregarded as unimportant. And so he's even saying the world power at that time in the Middle East was Babylon. He's saying Babylon isn't the one that's really in control. The sovereign Lord with the big hands is the man with the plan. So friend, this is how God speaks to us as human beings when we're, our hearts rebel and have a revolution. He says, listen, I'm in control. I've got big hands. Amen. Point number two, if you're taking notes, then, then he shifts from this, in, this, this infinitesimally huge picture of God to being small and intimate. In verse 11, it says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. Haven't you enjoyed pastor's messages on the good shepherd? Yeah, if you're enjoying those, I wrote those messages for him. <laughs> if you didn't, he did. Pastor Farrell's one of my best friends, and, and he and Millie are such tremendous people. Uh, I remember Whitley Church when it was across the highway on Highway 70, and my wife and I and our minister team came and sang and preached. There were about 65 people. What an incredible thing God is doing in Whitley in the bridge. And you are so blessed, and I know that you know that, to have the wonderful pastor and staff that is here at Whitley. Hallelujah. Pastor's messages have deeply impacted my life and, and so appreciative of how he has talked about the sheep being dumb. I can relate to that. My wife would say amen. And defenseless and directionless, dependent. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. So Isaiah has spread this huge vision of God. And then he spreads this small vision of God. That God is small enough to hold each of us in his arms. It's almost a maternal picture. A tender maternal picture of holding a baby lamb toward his heart. So they can feel his heartbeat. And then he speaks once again maternally. And he will care for those that have young. He's, he's talking about the mothers that are yet uh, suckling their lambs. He, he's, he's, he's painting a maternal, intimate, small 
picture of God. God's got great big hands, but they're small enough and tender enough to hold us close when we've been dumb and ignorant and stupid and rebellious. He holds us to his heart. He goes after that lost lamb. He's seeking for you if you're lost and away from God. Maybe you've followed God, but then you've gone and danced to your own tune. Glad you're here today. You're in the right place. I'm reminded of thinking of the shepherd and him holding the lamb close. Don't you know the shepherd smelled like sheep? I'm reminded a little bit of the prodigal son, the story in Luke's gospel, I think chapter 15. Remember the son went off and he wasted his father's money on riotous living and, and the father waited on the front porch day after day to see the son come and the son had been tending pigs, a Jewish boy tending pigs is the lowest, as low as you can get, tending pigs. And no doubt he smelled like pigs and no doubt he had pig excrement on him. He was barefoot and no doubt stunk. I know for some people the smell of pig manure smells like money, but buddy, there's nothing stinks like pig poop. And the father sees that young man coming as he awakened, as he awakened in the pig pen, and he's waking up. He's saying, even the servants in my father's house eat better than this. They have a clean, quiet, uh, warm place to sleep. I'll go to my father's house, and I'll say, Father, I'm not worthy to be compared, to, to, to be your son. Make me one of your servants. What does the father do? He hikes up his skirts. He wore robes. And in that culture, for an adult to run in public was shameful. People would mock him. The old man gathered up his skirts and ran toward the old man, the young man, and he hugged him. For a Jew to get pig excrement on his clothes was to be unclean. But he hugged him so he could feel his heart beat. That's the love of God. That's how God approaches us when we rebel, when we fail him. I failed God. Even as a minister, I failed God. But I'm grateful that he hugs me close to his heart. Our God reveals to the rebellious heart, to the heart that's failed. Maybe you failed your family or failed your platoon or maybe or your whatever it is in the branch of the military in which you serve. Maybe you failed in business or failed in relationships. What does God say to you? How does he speak to us? He says, I'm still in control. He comes and he comforts. Point number three, and our God confronts. You ever had a friend? that loves you enough to tell you the truth, but loves you even when you've blown it, but doesn't believe you've done a permanent job of it. Look what God, first, he confronts the failure of idolatry. The people of God are now in Babylon, but their hearts were far from God before they were taken into Babylon. Look what he says, he's confronting now, he's confronting the sin, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts an image, casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. 
A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, and he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. That will not topple. Well, if this is a God they've made, why do you need to nail it to the floor so it won't fall over? Our God's got great big hands, and he sits on the throne. You ain't taking him off that throne. God is mocking the idols of money, sex, and power, the idols of the stars and of the celestial bodies and of the earth and of fertility and of war. He's mocking them. It says in verse 23, he brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he whoa, blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. This week, one of the princes of this world will be buried. Michael Jackson, without a doubt, is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest entertainer the world has ever seen. But wouldn't you agree with me if you speak honestly? If you see the newsreels of how people responded to him or to Elvis, some of the individuals in his concerts were worshiping. They were weeping. Some of them, you look in the, the old newsreels from the 60s when they see the Beatles, some of them would pass out. I mean, fall in a faint when they get near them. It's idolatry. Sure, it's okay to enjoy an entertainer, but they're not God. They're not God. Elvis Presley, in the same way, people, you know, acted crazy around him. When my family traveled as evangelists, we ministered in New Jersey, met a family. Reverend Kevin Jonas and his family. Have you ever heard of the Jonas family? Their father pastored a church in northern New Jersey, about an hour from New York City. We used to sing and preach in their church, and their son Nick was on Broadway. Guess where they are now? They're all over the place. They got a TV show, they got a movie, they got a world tour. They're a wonderful Christian family, fine people. I've eaten in their home and made our sons horsed around on the trampoline with them. Haven't seen them in eight years, but I, I tremble for them because they face temptation beyond anything we can imagine. When people bow and tremble and weep and worship. But friend, there's only one that's worthy of worship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's got great big hands, but those hands, they hold the whole world in his hands, and they hold your life, and he's in control, and he's there to comfort you, but he's also there to confront you and me when we fail, when we make idols in our hearts. What's an idol? It's anything that distracts our attention and robs us from loving God and loving people. We sacrifice to idols. We get into pornography, and what do we do? We sacrifice love. If a married person, we sacrifice uh, our, our intimacy with our spouse to the image, the fantasy on that screen. 
If our thing is money and we won't be happy till we have more, 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 we will, we will sacrifice time with our children and with our spouse in order to gain more stuff. And we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> Man, I wish I'd have thought of that. God confronts the folly, the folly of idolatry. In verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings up the starry host one by one? He calls them all by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. He's confronting the folly of idolatry. He mentions in this text God the creator of the heavens and the earth and of the seas. He talks about in creating all of the starry host, one God doing all of this. And that was inconceivable to the, in the religious construct of that day. In Babylon, they had a God for everything. God of war, God of fertility, God of the stars, God for various planetary bodies. God is confronting the folly of all of that. You know, they found a tooth. They found one of Buddha's teeth. Do you know that? Discovered this a couple years ago, and this week I did some additional research on it. His body was burned at his uh, request when he passed, but they saved his left bicuspid right there. And, and in 1875, there was a temple built for this tooth in Sri Lanka in a city called Kandy, K-A-N-D-Y. And I could just imagine worshipers coming, Buddhists, to worship the image of Buddha. I can see some priests standing and say, let's all stand as we floss. This morning's sermon will be on the evils of gingivitis. The folly of idolatry. Happened to write a song about this. Maybe they would use in that worship service. Would you all like to hear it? You sure? All right. Wasn't sure if you were sure. Here it is. Here it is. O precious bicuspid, we venerate thee, who does only remnant without cavity. <laughs> the folly of idolatry. That's how God looks at idols. He mocks them. And then it, God confronts the faithlessness of idolatrous people. Verse 27 why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from God. God doesn't even know the pain I'm in. God doesn't know how I'm suffering. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause, some translations say, my just cause is disregarded by my God. This is the attitude of God's people as they are in captivity. God doesn't care. They're bringing God, once again, down to their level. Making God small, 
God must be tired. God must be busy. God doesn't care. Yes, God does care. He weeps over us, over our sins and our pains and our failures. But he is ready to restore. He names them. He says, why do you say, O Jacob? He's reminding them of their forefather. The name Jacob means heel grabber. He was the second of twins born. And when, when he came out, he reached out his hand, the Bible said, of his mother's womb and grabbed Esau's ankle, his older brother. Later on, he cheated his brother out of a birthright, deceived his father. His name means heel grabber, usurper, the cheat. And that's exactly who Jacob was. But God finally confronted him, confronted his sin and idolatry, and wrestled with him, the Bible says in the 32nd chapter of Genesis. Wrestled through the night with the angel, and God injured him. He put his hip out of joint. Friend, you fight with God. He will hurt you, but then he will restore you and give you a new name. That's good news. That's good news. He changed his name from Jacob to what? Israel, right. It means prince, a prince who has, who has overcome with God, has prevailed with God. So he's reminding these people that had failed God, as I have failed God, even as a minister. He's reminding them, this is who you were, Jacob, and this is who you can be. This is your calling. This is your potential. This is your destiny. Get out of the pig poop. Burn your idols. Cast them down. He's confronting their faithlessness. He's reminding them of their failure, but he's reminding them of their destiny and who they can be in Christ. Hallelujah. Got to move on here. Fourth point, our God restores. Our God restores. Would to God that our country would see religious or, or, or genuine Christian revival. Now, friend, we can change laws all day long. We can cast down Roe v. Wade. The number of abortions won't change. They'll just go underground. Because the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. The hope for America is Christian revival, not by forcing religion on other people. I am grateful we live in a country where we are free not to come to church. Some of you teenagers said, I wish my parents knew that. Some of you husbands say, well, I wish you'd say that to my wife. Thank God we don't live in, under religious tyranny. Thank God people aren't converted at the edge of a sword. Christ. Our God restores. The worship song that Pastor Jared and the team did earlier, they did that at, at uh, the bridge Thursday and Saturday night about wings of eagles and waiting upon the Lord and soaring and, and, and uh, being strengthened from our weariness. I asked Pastor Jared, I said, did you know the text I was preaching? He said, no, I, d I decided that a week ago. So I'd like to believe it's a God thing that we talked about in the music, rather, waiting upon the Lord, because our God restores. Look what it, it says. Wonderful language. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, 
Once again, a huge picture. He will not grow tired or weary. God's not like us. He doesn't wear out. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Hallelujah. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. That's good stuff. He says, those who hope in the Lord, if you're looking at a New King James or a King James Bible, it will, it will say, those that wait on the Lord. The NIV, which I'm using, says, those that hope on the Lord. The root of that word, the original language, Hebrew, the word meant to twist or to braid. Now, some of us here were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and learned to, learned to braid a rope. Or maybe royal rangers or missionettes learning to braid a rope. Perhaps you're a young lady and you braid your hair. That's the idea behind that word wait or hope is, is something is braided together. What's the idea? How do you put all that together? Those that wait, those that hope in the Lord, their behavior will weave God into their lives. They, their lifestyle will weave themselves into God's will. He becomes a part of the fabric of their lives. Is that how you're living right now? Or have you had a revolution of the heart, declared independence of the heart? Those that wait, those that hope, those that have their life intertwined with Christ shall what? Renew their strength. This is not like renewable batteries, some sort of ever-ready bunny. The idea there is an exchange, an exchange of our weakness for his strength, an exchange of our pig poop for his mercy, his courage, his strength. An exchange program, better than Chrysler, GM or Ford or anybody can come up with is an exchange program. Because what I got to give to God, my failure and my hurt and my sin, I can't do anything for God, but He loves us and there's nothing we can do about it. Hallelujah. He says, those that wait and hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall soar on wings like eagles. Some of us here may have had visions of angels or of God or heard God's voice in some prophetic dream. Those are infrequent and all of us don't receive those, but soaring on wings of eagles, receiving some sort of miraculous deliverance or healing or provision, soaring high. God enables us in certain special seasons to do that. And other times things are going our way and we've got the victory and we've got, you know, triumph in our lives and just natural momentum and adrenaline. We can run and not be weary. But friend, let's be honest, most of our lives are not on soaring around. Most of our lives are not running. 
Most of our lives are the day-to-day stuff of life, aren't they? Changing diapers, going to the grocery store, clocking in, dealing with employees, dealing with your boss, being patient with your spouse. The day-to-day stuff of life. Most of the time we walk, don't we? The day-to-day stuff of life. The grace of God is strong, is sufficient. Anybody can have the victory on the mountaintop. It's a whole different issue in the day-to-day nine-to-five drudgery of life to keep a sweet spirit, to keep a gracious attitude when you're suffering or have been betrayed. His grace, his ever-flowing river of grace is sufficient as our lives are braided into his. Hallelujah. How does God speak to us when we fail? How does God speak to those who have never served him and have had a revolution of the heart? He reveals to us that he is in control. He reveals his comfort. He he reveals his confronting finger of accusation against idolatry. And then he restores. Hallelujah. He restores. Friend, I close with this, and then we're going to pray. We'll open the front of the building here for any of you that have prayer needs of any sort. If you're away from God, please give us the opportunity to pray with you, to minister to you. You're in the right place. We want to see you in heaven. Friend, these words speak particularly to me. I've been in the ministry now since 1982, was ordained in 1989. And I've just come through the biggest failure of my ministry years. I was a pastor in a church in a local county. Inherited what many that know that situation was a, was a lose-lose situation. Bit off more than I could chew, and I worked hard at it and prayed hard at it and managed to make it worse. Failed. Made some good decisions and managed them poorly. Made some poor decisions because of pride, arrogance, impatience, or just downright exhaustion. Got betrayed, but also broke my word. I am so grateful for the friendship I have with your pastor and with Millie. No, I didn't commit adultery, didn't run off with a church checkbook. Not that, not that. And so when I read these words, when I got myself into a frenzy of ministry activity, God slammed on the brakes, baby. He can put on the emergency brake in your life and stop you just like that. Because he's a lot more concerned with what he's doing in us than with what he's doing through us. So friends, when I read this, when I make an idol out of ministry success in my own life, when I get caught up in power because of a ministry position, God knows exactly how to get my attention. So I've been out of active pastoral ministry almost eight months, unemployed like some of you. And it's an honor and a privilege to share the word with you today. So when I read these words, when I meditate on them as preparing to preach to you, I've been confronted and I've been comforted. And I'm in the process of being restored. We serve a great big God who loves us 
and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's good news. Let's stand together. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss you, and then uh, I and, and the prayer team will be around the front. If you're away from God, please don't leave this building without opening your heart to the love of God. If you're facing a huge decision, if you're facing a challenge, trouble at home, please give us a chance to pray with you. and Let's invite God to take that situation into his great big hand and tenderly deal with it. Going to dismiss in a moment and bless you. Please go to, the, uh, uh, to have fellowship and coffee and get to know each other out in the lobby. And uh, for those visiting, please stop by the visitor center, get uh, the gift and the mug and all of that. But friends, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you.